And we went to this hospital, Wayne, and the suffering and the screams. But every Sunday night, we had a service and share the gospel and give out the word of God. And their lives were transformed. And I began to see the power of God in the midst of suffering. Hello and welcome to First Person, a weekly conversation centered on the work of God in and through people. I'm Wayne Shepherd, and today you'll meet Dr. David Hunt of Envoy House Publishers. During today's broadcast, I invite you to visit us online at firstpersoninterview.com. Not only will you learn more about our guest, but you'll be able to follow links to even more information about our topic. Plus, you can go back and listen again, share the link with a friend who may want to listen, or search our program archive for past interviews. Once again, we're found at firstpersoninterview.com. Also, to leave a comment or suggestion, visit us online at facebook.com slash firstpersoninterview. Our guest, David Hunt, grew up as a missionary kid in Vietnam, but his life and work today cover a much larger part of the world. One of his projects is The Most Important Story, a 32-page booklet which colorfully tells the gospel story. To date, over 91 million copies in 100 languages have been used around the world. And now, it's also a smartphone app for even greater impact. Well, we've been friends for a long time, and David joined me in the studio recently to talk about his background growing up in Vietnam. It was very unusual, and as I have become an adult and I reflect back, I just really cannot believe that here I was. I was a missionary, Wayne, before the age of one. That's how I say it anyways. (laughs) My parents took me in their arms. They were from Canada. My father was a pastor but called to serve, and the mission said, do you know a country by the name of Vietnam? And they said, no, but they said, we'll go. I became sick. And the doctors told my parents that if they left and went to the coast by train, I would probably not make the trip, Hmm. that I would not survive. And they felt so called of God. They prayed for me. And it's the first time in in our lives, in my life, of course, that the Lord touched my body. And I didn't know it till years later. I was healed on the way to the coast. We got on the Iron Admiral in 1957, and I headed to the mission field. And we landed, and this is the the day, Wayne, I sort of say to people, you know, we started the war, but <laughs> that's not the case. But we were there before, long before the Americans arrived. Yeah, set the arrived. time frame for me. What what years? Uh, what year this, were you born? You don't mind telling me that? Fif- no, not at all. Fifty six. Okay. And uh, I had my first birthday on the ship going to Vietnam. Hmm. So I arrived in Vietnam at the age of one. This is uh, three years after Dinh Bien Phu, when the French had been defeated, and so this is the transitional period before the Americans had really come in. So we were posted to uh, an area south of Saigon. There were no other uh, white folk around, no other missionaries. And so I grew up, my first five years, my playmates were Vietnamese. I learned Vietnamese before mm-hmm. English. No no European missionaries even? No, nobody close to us. There was another missionary in another town, but no, we were it. I mean, that was it. Huh. And uh, But my, you didn't know anything different, did you? No, my norm, that's what's so amazing. My norm 
was living like a Vietnamese boy. My friends were Vietnamese, so I spoke Vietnamese before I fully spoke English. We were just looking at some childhood photos, and you're playing with these little Vietnamese kids, and you were just one of them. Yeah, very much so. And then what what began to change is, as we went back, we spent uh, three different terms in Vietnam. And as everybody knows, as Americans know, this is it was a, really an awful war on, on all fronts. But during that time, God allowed the missionaries in the church to reach that nation And I saw it firsthand, but I also saw things that now as I look back, I would not want my kids to even see the things that were normal for me, Wayne. And we lived for 10 years in Saigon, and my dad began to work with the military. So you were there all the way through the war? Yeah, people, when I when I talk to GIs and they'll, I'll say, uh, you know, I'll see veteran and I'll say, oh, did you serve, you know, in Vietnam? And they'll say, yes. Uh, how many tours? Where were you at? So I would know the city. You, you and, know the, the, the lay of the land. Yeah, and they'll say, like, uh, they call Way, which is spelled H-U-E. They still call it Huey. So <laughs> I always got a kick out of that. So then I tell them, no, I was there from 57 to 72, and then huh. my dad till 75 and the fall. But we saw the buildup of the American troops. But what was so unusual for me as a boy is that there was war all around us. We saw... Um, incidents that I would hope nobody would have to to see in war. We heard bombing. I went to bed literally every night hearing the thump of the B-52s bombing outside of Saigon. We got to be able to tell incoming and outgoing rockets. Um, It it got so dangerous in 63 or 62, the U.S. government said 200 American kids um, in Dalat, Vietnam. This is too dangerous. They evacuated us out of Dalat on three C-130s to Thailand. But on vacation, Wayne, get this, then the missionary kids go back to the war zone for vacation. So four months of the year, we were back in Vietnam, and my dad, as I got older, would take me with him. And we would fly by helicopter gunship. And as a boy, I mean, it just doesn't get any better. I guess not. But but again, that was normal for you. I mean, this was your life. It was so unusual that we didn't even pay attention, honestly, to to what happened around us. And then I think what began to, to form the person that I had became later in caring for the suffering is my dad began working at Gumwa Hospital in, in Saigon, and he became a chaplain there. And there was it's the largest uh, Vietnamese military hospital in Vietnam, 3,000 troops, and the conditions were so awful. And my dad would serve with others, but he was the lead uh, missionary on this. And every week he was in the hospital, and on my vacations I was required to go. Um, you know, I don't even remember if I wanted to go, <laughs> but you know how it is, you sure. know, when your dad's a pastor or a missionary. And we went to this hospital, Wayne, and the suffering and the screams and the the stuff I saw, like I just cringe now. Hmm. I don't even I couldn't handle it today. But for me, because I saw it so early on, um, it didn't even phase me. And Wayne, there were many beds, single beds in this hospital with three wounded soldiers oh, in my. one bed. Oh. But the thing that made the difference that I began to see is that every Sunday night we had a service and my dad or another missionary or a local pastor would preach and share the gospel and give out the word of God and their lives were transformed. And I began to see the power of God in the midst of suffering. Hmm. A number of years ago now, I was privileged to travel to what is now known as Ho Chi Minh City, Saigon for you as you're growing up there with you. 
And as we traveled around the city, you would point to landmarks and and tell the stories. That is a a most remarkable experience. You you remember that all very vividly, don't you? I I remember so much as we drove around Saigon together. Um, I remember the the floating restaurant that uh, one day was attacked. And in those days, they did very common, a double attack. They'd throw a hand grenade in. And they would wait for the rescuers. Uh, you know, it's just terrible how they did this. And then they would detonate a Claymore yeah. mine. It's a terrorism ploy today. Isn't it, it is. It's the same same ploy. And my dad was always seemed to be in the right place at the right time to help. And I just saw a program recently of the U.S. Embassy that was the first one. The evacuation? Uh, no, the the first one. This, oh, and he oh. was there. He was there for the evacuation too. But no, there was another embassy before that, and it uh, they detonated a car bomb outside of it. Oh. And my dad was within driving distance, and I remember that he told uh, he loaded up his vehicle an international vehicle with the wounded and took them to the hospital. But that was my norm. And so as I got older, I began to go to the training centers and the hospital and out into the war zone, uh, into fire bases with my dad. He would preach, and I started, he asked me to help, and I wanted to help. We would give out tracts, we would give out the Gospel of John, the Word of God, and we would give out something we called hygiene kits that were just a face cloth, soap, and whatever, trying to encourage them. Mm -hmm. But these men would then, some of them, I was bigger then you know, taller than. They were 16 or so, some of them. And they would go out to battle. And then we would see the same guys coming back wounded. And in those days, they had to amputate so many of the limbs because they didn't have time. So then my dad began working with Bob Pierce, with World Vision, and with other ministries providing wheelchairs. And then my dad was the extension of that. I was the one who hammered the plaque on the side of the wheelchair (laughs) saying donated by so-and-so. So from a very early age... I was involved in handing out the Word of God and seeing the influence on people's lives and saw the suffering. And I didn't put that together for years as to why I had such a heart. And you've seen, as we've gone into China and that, I just, when I see the suffering now, it's, I've got to do, I'm compelled to do something about it. That iconic photo of the evacuation of Saigon in, in 1975. And uh, your father was there? Were you there during? No, I was not there. I wanted to but be there. But your father was right on scene, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, my dad, my dad uh, promised our family. He was in uh, Asia at that time, interestingly. He was working with Dr. Ken Taylor of uh, Living Bibles International, and my dad was in charge of setting up the translation teams. He no longer felt it was safe enough for our family to be there, and he was right because the country fell so quickly. But he was in charge of the Vietnamese translation, and the manuscript, he believed, was still in Saigon. So he was in Bangkok and saw the news that uh, Nguyen Van Thieu, the president, had just stepped down. And my dad knew that if he didn't get in and get that manuscript, it was going to be lost all the years. And he was just dedicated to get that. So even though he promised my mother and our family he would not go in, he went in on a plane. And it was just he and a reporter, two passengers on the plane flying into Saigon. And he arrived there. And he, with Larry Ward, who worked with Bob Pierce and later founded Food for the Hungry, they somehow, the Lord used these men to bring out 1,600 
uh, from pastors and Christian leaders and a few generals and others out with the help of the U.S. government. But those scenes of the embassy and the, the people— The helicopter the hovering helicopter. with people going up the ladder. And... Yeah, my dad was, was there just before that. And um, I think just a day or two—I don't remember the exact date he left, but we have, we have family friends that left from the roof of the building opposite the embassy. So we lived all through that. And to me, the, the, the terrible thing from the outside is I felt that our efforts then, I've changed my thinking since, but I thought it was then done. I thought the gospel was finished. I thought the communists, as they came down, we heard there was going to be a bloodbath. They would kill all the pastors. They killed many. Uh, I really thought that it was done for Vietnam. Coming up in a moment, we'll continue this conversation with Dr. David Hunt of Envoy House Publishers on First Person. I've been talking with Sergei Rakuba of Russian Ministries about an urgent project taking shape to print and distribute Bibles in Russia during the upcoming 2014 Winter Olympics in Sochi. Opportunities like this are rare in the countries of the former Soviet Union, and we want to do what we can to help with this Bible project. For more, go to firstpersoninterview.com and click on Russian Ministries. And then join us for more information next week on First Person. Firstpersoninterview.com. My guest on First Person today is my friend, Dr. David Hunt, who is president of Envoy House Publishers. Of course, the most important story is something uh, millions of people around the world have seen and have used as a gospel ministry, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a few moments. But I want to go back to Vietnam, where you grew up, David. Talk about the gospel there then and the gospel now. It's, it's such a contrast, Wayne. I remember that probably the, the thing that typified the church in those days was the circumstance of war. When they talk about foxhole uh, conversions— there really were many, many, many thousands who put their faith in Christ as a result of the conditions they found themselves in. The Vietnamese on both sides, north and south, suffered greatly. Of course, in the north, there was no missionary presence. Mm -hmm. The church was basically non-existent. Uh, There was a church allowed, but it was not functioning. So the activity in terms of church planning, that's what my dad was doing initially, and then evangelism with the troops. And in because of the conditions being so terrible that these young men knew that um, as they went to battle that their lives, they most probably would be wounded and very likely would not even make it back. So when we shared the gospel with them and they took their tracts or the New Testaments or the Gospels of John and put it in their breast pocket, they took it into the battle zones and they read those scriptures and we we heard many testimonies later, and in the, the last five years of my dad's ministry in Vietnam, he and his fellow uh, co-workers said that they had documented over 10,000 decisions for Christ, which was unheard Incredible. of in the history of yeah. Vietnam. Yeah. But you felt when the communists took control of the country that the gospel then, it would be closed to the gospel. Uh, we know now that God will find a way, don't we? And tell, talk about what's happening in Vietnam today. I was there just a year ago and saw some of it again uh, after my first visit there with you many years ago. I was wrong in my conclusion, and I never wanted to go back to Vietnam. I, uh, I didn't like the communists. I didn't like communism. Many of our personal friends were sent to re-education camps. Many of the pastors our family knew were killed. Many were sent away. We have friends that survived 12 and 13 years in the re-education camps. And um, some of them, uh, actually one 
who was the defense minister, General Ga. He was a three-star general and at one time commanded a million troops, how he got left behind in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. He was my, we had many trips. We flew on his plane with the three stars, and he would let my dad preach and me hand out gospels and tracts, <laughs> but he never accepted the Lord and was this tough general. Well, he went to re-education camp, and a chaplain, That this was an amazing story, my dad had arranged to pick this chaplain up in Saigon. And for years, my dad was heartbroken that somehow he missed him. And this chaplain went to the same re-education camp as this general. They met each other. The chaplain climbed over the fence, dividing the generals from the other officers and led General Ka to the Lord in the re-education camp. (laughs) And later, I forget, 1983, I think, my dad went back to Vietnam. I had not gone yet and met with General Ka now a member of a Baptist church, and I later met with him. Absolute conversion turned to God. Now, it might surprise people that the church is alive. Um, How well it is is to be debated, but it is alive and growing in Vietnam. Yeah, probably the greatest example. We, As we went back in my first trip was, um, I think, in 1993, because I really didn't want to go back. But I began hearing that the underground church was alive and well and growing. So we went back, and, and conditions were very uh, tense, and we had to be very careful. Pastors were being arrested left and right. And we met with a pastor that had been on my heart. He had just come out of prison, a Pastor Thu. We call him Pastor Elias, and you've mm-hmm. met with him, and yeah, we've traveled times, together. Yeah. Yes. He had just come out of prison, and we sat down and asked him his view of, of what had gone on in Vietnam. He is considered the father of the underground church because, believe it or not, after the fall of Vietnam, he established a church under communism that grew to 5,000 members, which was an absolute miracle. Even in uh, during the war years with the missionaries, there's no church of that size. But the, the church was shut down. He was sent to prison, and then we met with him. Hmm. And my vision then, we had just begun working on the most important story, and I had a real heart for the kids. And I'm thinking, what do we do in a communist nation to reach the kids? So I asked he and his wife if they would be willing, if we would come up with the funding to provide five or 6,000 copies of the most important story. This is a, a booklet, a colorful yes. booklet that catches the eye of children, and it tells the gospel story. Yeah, it's the poor, it's the it's sort of a condensation of the entire Bible, starting with creation and ending up with a direct invitation to accept Christ, 40% scripture. And um, just something that we had, the Lord had led us to develop over the years from the field. And so when I asked them if they would be willing, they later told me that they didn't respond at first. And then they discussed after my dad and I had left, and they said to each other, you know, David has asked us to consider this, but the most dangerous thing in a communist society is to work with the children. And he later told me that he well could have gone back to prison the very first time they shared the gospel with kids. Well, they went ahead and they did the first distribution in December of 1994 or 1995, and those copies were distributed, and I'll never forget the number, 1,734 kids accepted Christ in communist Vietnam. Amazing. We could spend the rest of our time talking about what's going on in that particular country, but the important point I want to make today is that your heart and vision for the gospel was forged in those difficult circumstances. And if anything, it has fueled you all these years so that now 
the most important story in booklet form is, what did you tell me, 91 million copies? Yes, I think it was last year, which from that first printing in Vietnam, we did English, but then the first printing outside was in Vietnam, my sort of home nation, as I call it, uh, from 6,000, I think, 500 copies to over 91 million copies today in 165 countries. We've had uh, hundreds of thousands of documented decisions for Christ. It's the booklet that Operation Christmas Child for 15 consecutive years has used uh, all the major ministries. That's from Samaritan's Billy, Purse. Samaritan's mm-hmm. Purse, yes. Uh, Billy Graham, Luis Palau, Operation Mobilization, our good friends there, they've been using it on the ships for for 20 years. Yeah, I was deep in Russia working with Russian ministries a few years ago in Beslan, and lo and behold, out comes the most important story booklet right there in the hands of the of the kids. That's what we. That's how we communicated the gospel to yeah, them. Yeah, that's. I was so excited by that. And another nation that people would be surprised at, where we've we had both U.S. government and Cuban government permission, was to distribute these materials in Cuba. Mm-hmm. And per capita, more of our most important story went into Cuba than in any other country. I think 1.7 <laughs> million copies. And at uh, the great celebrations in 1999, the evangelical celebrations of Cuba in Revolution Plaza, my dad and I were seated uh, in the second row about 30 feet from Fidel. And um, after the ceremony, I was uh, got within about six feet of him. And my plan was, which wasn't a good plan, I later found out, (laughs) I had my Bible and the three materials we had supplied, the most important story, a New Testament, and the Gospel of John, 500,000 of each that we gave to the church in Cuba. And it was televised, and pastors all over Cuba were so excited because what I did is I held them up on my chest as the cameraman would scan Fidel (laughs) and then go down the aisle. So I was holding them up, and pastors all across Cuba later told me, we saw you, we saw the most important story. I wish we had time to talk about so many more things. Uh, The most important story is now an app uh, for the iPhone and soon Android as well. And that is going around the world in some amazing places, places where the gospel hardly penetrates at all. And yet the app telling the story is being downloaded. I I urge people to go to the website that I'll give in a few moments and and, uh, learn more about that app. But I want to conclude with a challenge. And that is, as we go out into the world, and we often go on short-term mission trips, or even as business people, we travel around the world, do we take the gospel with us in a form that can be communicated in these, in these languages? The most important story is the solution to that, isn't it? It really is. And we feel called of God to be the provider for the church. And our goal is to be the leading provider in print and digitally of evangelistic materials for the world, period. And we have a distribution center in Dallas where we stock 34 languages, but now can provide 100 languages in under a week to any church in the U.S. In quantity. If, in, they, if a group is going to want to pass them out, yes, they can do that. Yes, and they can order. Within one week, we can provide 100 different languages in print. And then as the apps are developed, they can they can show them on their iPad and also project them now. And and the, the just amazing development is that, and we just ask Christians to pray for this, is who would have ever thought, and I didn't, what the, we felt called of God to do Arabic and Farsi. And after three weeks of the Arabic app being up, we have now had, I've lost count, but over 1,300 downloads of the outright gospel. So the gospel is going out no matter the cost to the people you've seen in China, Wayne, and they so want and desire it. So we need to, as the church in the West, take God's word with us in print and through digital means. 
Our guest today has been Dr. David Hunt of Envoy House Publishers. If you'd like to know more about the most important story and how you can obtain copies to use as an evangelistic tool, both here and overseas in many languages, visit us online at firstpersoninterview.com. Also, as we mentioned, the most important story is now a smartphone app available in several languages, and it's being used of God to penetrate some places in the world that are difficult to reach with the story of Jesus. Please pray for this tool and learn more at firstpersoninterview.com. And then once you've used the most important story to tell others the good news, tell us the good news on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash firstpersoninterview. Next week, we'll talk about the power of God's Word to break through in places where you might think it impossible. Sergei Rakuba of Russia Ministries will tell us his story next time. Now, with thanks to my friend and producer Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepard. Join us here next week, same time, for First Person.